All right. Hello out there in the land of the tubes that are, well, you. Um, welcome to this Wednesday's episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Tom Hollingsworth here, as always, with a familiar face. Uh, for those of you who may have been paying attention over the last couple of months, uh, Max Mordiaro is joining me today. Max, how are things in your uh, continent of the woods? Hello, Tom. This is awesome to be here again. Well, things are, I guess, pretty much okay uh, comparing to what's going on on your side of the pond. So we are happy. <laughs> hey, I'll take happy on, on a day like this. So um, I also am enjoying the fact that there's no hurricanes. So we'll you know, okay. take that too. Yeah, so we got a great lineup of stories that are going to be coming your way, but uh, I'm going to drop back. Remember, this is the kind of little pre-show for people who uh, tune in early, but uh, this won't be in the recording. We'll jump up and get ready to go. So, Max, are you ready to do the rundown? Well, absolutely. Looking forward to it again. And uh, uh, I did, did last time with Rich and now with you, so it's uh, cool to uh, see a different feeling to it as well. So looking forward awesome. to it. Awesome. <laughs> well, then let's get going. Happy National Women's Equality Day, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the news of the week with an elastic level of snarkiness. Uh, my name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am your host for this show, and today I am joined by one of our great Tech Field Day delegates, Mr. Max Mordiaro. Max, welcome to the show. Hello, Tom. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always a pleasure, Max. Uh, it's, it's always great to get the perspectives of some of our great delegates in, uh, in the industry. And uh, knowing your speciality in, uh, in the data center and things like that, you know, I, I'm always fascinated to see what you have to say about our news coming up. Speaking of which, we're going to get rolling right into the rundown. Uh, we're we're going to start off with our favorite segment here called News or Nah. This is where we looked at everything that was going on in the world and realized that, well, some of these don't need a whole lot of discussion. So we're just going to kind of touch them real quick and keep on moving. And uh, we'll decide, Max and I will decide whether or not this is really worthy of the news. Uh, starting off with our very first story, uh, open source vendor Lumina Networks announced last week that it is going to be winding down operations. The company, which was founded back in 2017 and had been backed by both AT&T AT &T and Verizon, was the holder of the SDN controller IP that had been developed by the entity formerly known as Brocade before they were shattered into a thousand pieces and scattered across the universe like the Infinity Stones. Um, CEO Andrew Coward said that the company was hit with a double whammy of anyone, COVID-19 related issues, along with the typical struggles that you see in a company that relies pretty much on open source. Uh, Coward said that VCs and telcos typically don't invest heavily in companies that are founded for open source purposes. Max, does this deluminate the SDN space with Lumina kind of exiting the company, uh, exiting the space? Well, you, you know, I'm not a uh, networking expert, but there are a couple of SDN solutions out there. And the question has always been with open, open, open source project about their, you know, financial viability, whether they're able to sustain the cost of operation based on their sales model, which is primarily around support. So it's kind of not surprising, especially looking at the current economic situation. That said, uh, I've, I've never heard of them. Uh, I'm more looking at what's in the data center. So not really uh, yeah uh, kind of kind of not not surprising the sense that i didn't know them but um, i don't know maybe you can tell me what you think about it being more in that space 
Yeah, the fact that literally nobody had heard of Lumina Networks before they announced that they weren't going to be a thing anymore kind of tells you the trajectory that they were hoping for. When you look at their backers, AT&T and Verizon, uh, AT&T had purchased the Viata Open Network Operating System from uh, Brocade shortly before the dissolution. So I think what happened was Lumina was aiming for an acquisition and just mm -hmm. fell a little short before the runway ran out. So best of luck to those folks at Illumina. Hopefully you guys find gainful employment somewhere else very soon. Yeah. Moving on to our next story, a little bit of security news. Uh, Joe Sullivan, who is the former head of security for Uber, the company that will taxi you anywhere you want, was charged last week with attempting to hide a massive data breach from federal investigators. This breach happened back in 2016 and ultimately led from his dis led to his dismissal from the company the following year. Federal prosecutors were very, very clear that there was a distinction between what had happened, where the Uber had failed to protect the customer's data, and what they did to Sullivan, which was the fact that he was trying to hide it from the people who were investigating the breach after the fact. The breach, which exposed the email addresses and phone numbers of 57 million Uber users, and additionally exposed 600,000 driver's licenses, was settled by Uber in 2018 for around $148 million. You know, the kind of stuff that Uber probably has in the couch cushions. Is this a sign that the US federal government is really gonna start going after executives if they're trying to hide the truth from the general public? Well, I'll give you a perspective, which is of course from uh, someone living in Europe, right? So uh, from, 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 uh, from, from that perspective, uh, what I would say is that um, um, what, what we tend to have more uh, consumer-oriented, let's say, governments over here in, in Europe. So the fact that the, the, the U.S. Feds may be looking, you know, at uh, at executives, at organization, and starts to be start to be kind of customer-friendly is would be a really really encouraging sign. That said, I mean, um, there should never be uh, any kind of let's say complacency with these kind of activities. I mean. Um, Let's, let's take it that way. Of course, it, I don't want to get too political on that, but society has to be uh, overlooking what organizations are doing and what businesses are doing. I mean, businesses need to be somehow accountable for what they do and they need to be accountable for the data they hold on their customers. So definitely, uh, it will not just be a good sign that they go over, but it will be a great sign if it starts to be systematic. I mean, there, there's, been, there's been so many that have breaches, there needs to be some, uh, some trust which is built again you know, with, uh, with people and customers. Yeah, I, I will say that Uber should be very glad that this happened in the US because if uh, someone had tried to hide a data breach in the UK with GDPR, Joe Sullivan would be in a lot more trouble than he is right now. <laughs> yep. All right, uh, we're gonna stay on the security theme here for just a second. Security giant Palo Alto Networks announced this week that it will be acquiring the Crypsis Group for around $265 million. Crypsis specializes in incident response, risk management, and digital forensics. Palo Alto CEO Nikesh Arora says that the acquisition will help the company not only predict and prevent attacks, but mitigate the impact of breaches in the future should they happen. Given the recent spate of ransomware attacks, including the one that snagged Garmin a couple of weeks ago, is this a move by a security firm to say, you're going to really need to have a cleanup option in mind in case something happens and the bad guys do manage to get in and wreak havoc in your network? Well, again, uh, I'm, I'm not such a big follower of networking companies, but what 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 seems to to be a trend these days is that all of the major networking and infrastructure organizations.
patients are purchasing or consolidating their presence in uh, other security footprint actually in the portfolio. So I think that that kind of makes sense uh, from, from, from that perspective. No, um, they, the, the, the question is always how, uh, how good the tool is, how it integrates with all of the other products and so on. Um, in, I mean, if we look at Cisco, they've been surprisingly uh, fresh in some of their uh, vendors, I'm thinking about Talos and so on, but uh, I don't know about Palo Alto, you know them better. So I'd really be interested in hearing what you think about it. Yeah, Crypsis uh, was a company I hadn't heard of, but the, the idea of doing digital forensics actually is a huge deal now because it's not just enough to prevent attacks. You have to work off of the model that you are going to be breached and you need to be able to clean things up. Uh, and I think that's what Palo Alto is headed for here. I know that Nikesh Aurora was really, you know, pushing the upfront idea of, you know, we can prevent attacks, but just in case they get through, we can help you find out who did them and where they're coming from because attribution is becoming a huge thing in the security space. And I know that from listening to some security podcasts as of late, um, attribution is actually becoming a huge fight for people. You know, who says who did what with what and this this should help that out. Um, let's move on to some wireless news. Um, the emerging technology that is 5G just got a huge boost in the US. The US Department of Defense announced this week that it has cleared spectrum in the 3,450 to 3,550 megahertz range for use by providers. Uh, combined with frequencies that had previously been opened up, this means that there is now a very large contiguous space that can be auctioned off to providers for use and deployments in the future. And with the rumors that Apple's gonna be releasing a 5G iPhone coming up next month, uh, this should get some people very, very excited because it means there's gonna be more faster bandwidth. Um, does having all of this additional space mean that we might actually get 5G deployed faster, Max? Or is this just another one of those things where, okay, great, there's something we can use, but we're not really gonna be able to get to it for a while? Well, maybe maybe it will be deployed faster in the sense that there won't be uh... That much further, if, if the bandwidth is not fragmented, then you don't need to try to figure out for every site, every location, what specific bandwidth you're going to use. You have a much broader bandwidth available or much larger you know, set, of the, set of ranges. And therefore, you can probably uh, kind of automate or uh, let's say uh, kind of system, systematize, industrialize your deployment. You don't need to be so picky in your deployments. No, the, the thing is, if you come when it comes to deploying these kind of networks, you need to do some kind of physical installation, and therefore, I don't know if you know releasing extra ranges is really going to impact delivery timelines, getting the hardware on site, and and building whatever happens. Perhaps in the backend infrastructure, it's just going to make it easier to manage. Yeah, I I I'm still a little bit. Um cautious about 5G, um, getting it deployed and everything like that, um, mostly because what's going to end up happening is the, the, having extra spectrum is not going to matter until there are enough handsets in the wild to really take advantage of it. Um, I know that here locally, AT&T has enabled 5G for my account, but I can't use it. So we'll have to see what happens. All right. And our last news or not story, this one's going to hit right home for you, Max. Uh, Pure Storage announced that their newest generation of the Flash Array slash slash C is now shipping. The device, which is optimized for two-tier storage workloads, uses enterprise-grade flash for fast performance as well as capacity-oriented storage to save some costs on the platform. The idea is that Pure is looking to position this array as um, 
an alternative to hybrid arrays, which have been all the rage as of late. But they're not the only company that's doing this. Vast Data and Store One are also charging forward in the market. Uh, we just recently published some videos of, of the newest uh, generation of the Flash Array over on techfieldday.com. So you're definitely going to want to check those out if this is something of interest to you. But Max, is the shift to trying to do cheaper all-flash storage arrays using high-performance enterprise flash and QLC for storage on the back end news? Well, I would say it, it can be news in the sense that we're seeing a major uh, storage company now moving towards that direction. But as you said before, we've seen other companies move uh, towards that, uh, that path uh, before. So we've seen uh, Vast Data, we've seen uh, Star Wars doing, taking these routes as well. And it's obviously clear that uh, hybrid arrays, uh, we're coming to we're coming to a break point where there is no uh, real reason anymore to go with hybrid arrays because we have technology which is fast enough, reliable enough, cheap enough to uh, to go on full flash. And if you look what the companies are doing now, if you're if you're fronting your QLC flash with uh, Crosspoint then you're getting very, very uh, good results in terms of performance. You know, get, you're mixing the capacity of QLC with the durability of, uh, and, and the performance of, um, of uh, Crosspoint of uh, Optane. And, and therefore, you're getting to what you used to have in, a, it's like kind of getting a hybrid array on steroids, actually. You know? So that's absolutely the way forward. Uh, and if I understand well, the, the second generation of uh, Flash Array C has no better capacity because they have newer QLC generation and so on. So, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's it's really great and exciting news. It's good to see yeah. them join the bandwagon. I'll uh, I'll let you know when my uh, evaluation unit ships and I can move my entire Plex library over to it if it's really worth it. Look for mm -hmm. that story soon. <laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and jump into the main stories uh, this week. We've got some security news and some unfortunate outage news, but, you know, that's the way it goes. And let's kick off with the first big thing. The Chinese government has enacted a ban on secure communications that was initially put in place in July. They are actually putting teeth in it now. The ban covers the use of Transport Layer Security version 1.3, which is the latest release, and it specifically bans the use of encrypted server name indicators, also known as ESNIs. With a traditional server name indicator, you can infer which servers are being contacted because it's in plain text in the packet header. All you have to do is read the name and you know where people are going. TLS 1.3 introduced, introduced ESNI, which encrypts this field to obfuscate DNS and server requests with an extra layer of security, almost like the TLS developers didn't want you to be able to snoop on things. The Chinese government is now dropping all TLS 1.3 traffic with ESNI enabled and temporarily banning the IP addresses that are using it. They are allowing TLS 1.3 traffic that uses traditional non-encrypted SNI, and they are allowing previous versions of TLS, which do have problems with things like man-in-the-middle attacks. What does this mean for the future of communications in China? Because we've been seeing a lot of, of brouhaha about VPNs and, and things like that. And does this mean that the developers of TLS are really going to continue to add all of these functions and features into the protocol, uh, knowing that they're probably going to get swatted down by regimes that are not thrilled with the idea of encryption? Well, uh, they, uh, they, they can at least earn, let's say, a medal or some kind of prize for trying, you know, but the, the reality is that China uh, has at least from their perspective, legitimate reasons to play uh, cat, and cat and mouse here with this uh, kind of technology. 
they have the resources and they have the manpower to handle that. You know, so uh, they. Uh, I, I do not see any kind of improvement, and rather, uh, I would say that perhaps the the way to opening communications, you know, towards China might be going with uh, systems such as Tor or something like that. But again, these are really complex to operate, and they have their own own set of problematics because uh, exit points can also be monitored and so on. So there's no real kind of solution. So it might be cat and game, you know, cat and mouse, uh, as usual. Yeah, yeah. ESNI was specifically designed for this exact purpose in mind, for people who are monitoring packet headers for things. And they said, you know what, we're just going to obfuscate this, and that way people can continue to surf wherever they want, and nobody can eavesdrop on it. And I mean, we all know that the Chinese government has problems with that because they want to tightly control what people can see inside of the country. And so mm -hmm. their solution is actually the, the right one, which is I'm going to block all this traffic because if you're using it, you must be up to no good. Um, there's no easy solution to this, unfortunately, other than keep developing these protocols, keep developing these ideas, something's going to get through eventually. And if it means that one more person gets to uh, experience what the internet really looks like, then I my hat's off to the people at the TLS group for doing it. But, but again, well, one quick comment on that as well is that, uh, you know, uh, there's what technologists are doing, you know, engineers, technologists, researchers, whatever, and there, there are governments. And, uh, China has a specific government, but we shouldn't so uh, look at the fact that our own Western governments are also trying to implement some kind of surveillance programs and so on. So while, uh, you know, TLS 1.3 and ESNI are still enabled and nobody has a problem with that, uh, there, are, there are areas which are being targeted as well by governments. So uh, everybody has to be on the, on the lookout somehow. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Let's be fair. The NSA is a little bit better than the Chinese government, but not by much. And if you're listening, NSA, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you. They're just brute forcing the whole thing, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> um, Monday wasn't really a good day for the folks over at Zoom. They had an outage in the service that started around 9 a.m. Eastern time and continued for about four hours. Users were greeted with error messages saying they couldn't connect to scheduled calls. Some users were able to connect, but only if they directly used the client. Now, with the state of the world being what it is right now, more and more people are starting to use Zoom and other conferencing platforms to do business. The outages included schools who were trying to do distance learning from home. In fact, it was the first week of school for a lot of places. Uh, businesses were attempting to have meetings because that's all we do anymore is sit on Zoom. And one thing I didn't realize that courthouses are trying to have hearings for accused criminals via Zoom and for four hours, nobody could get a trial. Uh, Zoom did finally release a statement at the end of the day, but they were pretty sparse on the details. All they said was that there were some authentication features that were briefly knocked offline. We're relying more and more on Zoom to do things that we used to do in person. Does this kind of outage discourage you and, and shake your faith in video conferencing overall, Max? I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so because I've never had any kind of confidence in the human's ability to do things properly. <laughs> but uh, no, fr frankly, and uh, sarcasm aside, problems are going to happen. And we're no dependent on Zoom to do that. But we've seen outages impact other areas, you know, when when Cloudflare has an outage, when Google has an outage or something, I mean, it's the same kind of thing happening. And the fact that we are moving towards a more and more digitalized world, I mean, not the thing you hear at keynotes, but the thing you see on a day-to-day -day basis. You're at home, you need to work from home, you need to use some tools. Well, I think that at the very least, it also makes us think about finding contingencies, you know, finding other options. If we cannot use Zoom, then we should be aware that 
if we are not able to use Zoom or any other tool, for instance, then we need to be prepared to use something else. And that's that's kind of take away from that because failures are going to happen. Yeah. And honestly, when you look at it on the on the grand scale of how bad could this have been, four hours of an outage that only required an authentication problem and clients could still connect is, is really not much of an outage. Um, and if anyone at other companies who run video conferencing software want to start taking pot shots at the boys at Zoom, uh, do remember that one, you've had outages recently that have lasted for days. And two, as soon as you call down the thunder, you're going to get knocked offline again. So let this one slide, turn off the marketing fire hose and just accept the fact that technology is not always perfect. Unlike us, we're always perfect. Exactly. All right. It wouldn't be the rundown unless we had some stories about CPUs and chips. And let's be fair, we was there the biggest dog on the block. Um, Intel just wrapped up their 2020 architecture day late last week. And the end of the show highlighted some interesting changes coming from the chip titan. Intel's looking to start building heterogeneous designs over their traditional monolithic architecture starting in the 2024 timeframe. The idea is, is they're going to make components for the chips on different manufacturing processes. So they are going to try to mix some seven nanometer cores with some 10 nanometer GPUs, and then maybe even some even bigger 20 nanometer uh, purpose-built components to go into these things. Now, the reason why we're talking about this is because Intel's been in the news recently. They had to admit that they are way behind on their seven nanometer process switchover, and it's going to have a material impact on the future of the company. How material? Well, one of the executives already got fired for it. Um, Max, is this idea of using these little tiny chiplets that are heterogeneous and not all one process architecture, the idea that Intel's really trying to make some lemonade out of their seven nanometer lemons? Well, obviously they're in trouble uh, in that area because if they had things sorted out, they wouldn't be trying to use old and mix old with new. Uh, I'm not a big fan of analogies, especially people in IT like to talk about cars and compare cars with computers, but this looks very much like trying to build a new model or doing a facelift of a car by using parts from an older car. And we know very much that most of the times this doesn't turn out very well, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So the question is, what's going to be the real performance of these components, thinking that you have 10 nanometers and, and 7 nanometers? I don't know what, what's going to happen at a physical level perspective, but considering the story which is coming next, well, this doesn't sound too exciting for Intel. I mean, that said, being fair, they have better things going on with Octane and so on. But from a processor perspective, this is really bad. I think they're really starting to lose ground to the competition. Yeah. Yeah. Intel is no longer the 800-pound CPU gorilla. And, and we've seen them being slowly chipped away pun intended, over the last couple of months, even really the last year, um, between all of the things that are going on with ARM and all of the other things that are going on in the market and the, the switch to using SOCs over monolithic CPUs. Um, I'm glad that Intel has diversified. I just hope that it's enough to keep things rolling. And speaking of the story that you mentioned, because these kind of go hand in hand, um, TSMC has announced that they're going to shrink their dyes even more. This week, they announced a roadmap that includes a move to five nanometer process. And that's currently in high volume production because it's rumored to be used by Apple. Um, and given the amount of chips that's being made for this, it's a, probably a pretty safe bet. Now that roadmap also lays out a journey to get all the way down to a three nanometer process on some of the units, which is a super, super tiny process to be working on chips. Max, these two stories really couldn't be much different. Intel is trying to jam big pieces into the stuff that they're doing because they have a glut of those in inventory and they need to get rid of them because they can't fix the ones they got. 
DSMC, on the other hand, is like shrink, 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 get it as small as you can. How much lower can we go? Do we need to keep shrinking these dies down? And and honestly, I mean, how much smaller can an iPhone get at this point? You know, it's it's a, it's a very ample question. It's a very ample question. But if you if you think about it, if you can if you can shrink more transistors into smaller chips, then you know, as long as it is physically doable, and as long as it is still economical to pursue, then there's no reason why it should stop. Because if you look at the the background story, it's kind of the story of Intel's moral law, right? Where we were increasing the density, shrinking the die, and so on. So as long as it makes sense, then I don't see that stopping. No, the, the thing is about what is the outcome of that? What is the outcome? And if we look at what's been happening, let's say, outside of the x86 world, well, we, we clearly see that all of those new processors that we're seeing on mobile devices and all, they are really on par, if not better, than what you have in some of the regular computers you may have at home. So, uh, you know, that that that's where there, there was a discussion at that point, right? Intel has a very huge footprint, a very huge, um, let's say, uh, market share in the server world. Because historically, we've been building on the x86 architecture because uh, the way enterprise it works is these are very slow processes. And even if we talk about cloud and we talk about uh, application refactoring and so on, the reality is that a lot of applications that we see today are maybe five to 10 to 20 years old, and they may still exist 10 to 20 years from now. So it's not just going to change or disappear, but there might come a time where a new architecture may emerge and where the, let's say, the, the supremacy of Intel in the data center world will be really, uh, you know, put uh, to, to some kind of uh, stronger challenge. Yeah, I think that's probably the case. We're going to end up seeing um, the dethroning of Intel, but not because somebody did a better job of making chips than Intel. It's just that the industry has moved on to needing something different. Just like we move from mainframes to client server, from client server to cloud, it's not the fault of one company. Although I would really like to see Wang computers make a, back, uh, make a comeback. Uh, one more story that I added just to the list right now, uh, kind of for Max being a storage guy, uh, but it's not a happy story, folks. Um, rumors are NetApp is going to be laying off about 700 people. Uh, the bulk of those folks, however, are coming from the solid fire unit. Uh, according to Chris Malore over at Blocks and Files, it's looking at about like about 100 staff at the solid fire facility. We'll be uh, looking for a future endeavor. Uh, overall, the impact has been greatest on the field sales teams with the hyperconverge infrastructure team taking a big hit. Uh, Chris was trolling over around on the layoff.com where there are some very unhappy people saying some things about, you know, failed acquisitions and internally they've known this for a while and it was just kind of cleaning out the closet. Um, here's the interesting thing, though. According to Chris... Uh, some of his inside sources are telling him that NetApp sales at, sales reps tend to take all of these HCI sales leads and then convert them into NetApp filers. They're kind of cutting themselves off at the knees and not giving anybody a chance to do this. Now, I'm familiar with NetApp. I'm familiar with SolidFire folks from all the way back in the day because I spent a year trying to be a storage analyst and Lord knows I can't do it as well as Steven can. But, you know, Max, what does this mean for you? I mean, obviously we're in a we're in a, a time when a lot of people are cutting headcount because they're finding that they don't need them or they're trying to slim down their business processes. So you would expect to see this kind of happen all over the place. But for one organization to take what the brunt of about 15% of the layoffs, is that a problem? 
Well, you know, when 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 organizations are uh, you know starting with reductions in forest programs, it's never good news for anyone. Yeah. Um, the the thing is, when it happens at at such a at such a scale, then it it kind of makes you it kind of makes you think whether um, you know some organizations have this kind of cyclic approach. We see that, for example, with VMware, with Dell Technologies, and so on. But here it seems to be a much bigger thing, and it kind of makes you think whether there was some, there wasn't something wrong with the strategy, you know, that they had for this product for OC for um, uh, hybrid what they call that hybrid cloud infra or infrastructure or whatever it was it was called. I mean, it's, it's always sad news because we know friends or friends of friends which are being laid off. The, the thing which I find disturbing, and maybe I may divert from your original question, is that we are right now in a, in a kind of difficult economic situation, at least in the United States. And the question is, uh, to which extent those reductions in force are related to the overall economic situation, to which extent they're related to strategic decisions to divest some business lines and something like that. We don't really know, right? So that's, uh, that, that's kind of the, uh, the only un unknown thing. Uh, that said, I had the opportunity to, to work or to engage in the past with, uh, with NetApp people in, in the field here in, in EMEA, and uh, I didn't get a feeling that people were really trying to convert, uh, hyper-converged uh, into uh, NetApp failure cells. They were really trying to complement that to, to kind of prove the synergies between both things. Uh, actually, what we had seen at the time was them trying to to kind of uh, explain the the, 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 value, the added value of uh, using that technology with a virtualized filers and things of this kind. So that's kind of surprising, you know. But then again, uh, there is always this point, which is how uh, the sales organization is structuring, you know, uh, the, the deal. So they're structuring the, the revenue uh, of their sales representatives, because of course, if they're incentivizing people from selling filers because they're getting a much better commission, then of course uh, you cannot expect them to sell, you know, uh, HCI. Mm. So uh, that's that's yeah. also one point. Yeah, I, I would agree with your point there. I think that a lot of COVID-related um, business decisions are covering some other decisions that were going to be made anyway, and now they have a convenient mm. excuse to point at the the virus boogeyman over in the corner and say we had to do it. So we'll see if this ends up making a slimmer, leaner NetApp and uh, mm. and making things work a little bit better. But ultimately, you know, our thoughts and, and uh, feelings here at the show are out going out to the folks who are now looking for work in this crazy world. Good luck to all of you. Um, we hope that things work out for you. Um, on that note, you know, uh, thank you for tuning in for today's rundown. We really appreciate you being a part of everything that we do here at Gestalt IT. Remember that this is available as a podcast. We're live on YouTube every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Standard Time. We also upload this video to Facebook. If you want to check us out on YouTube and see some of our other great stuff, if you're not already here, use the URL youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video. Uh, Facebook page is facebook.com slash gestalt IT. We will be back next Wednesday to talk about more IT news, assuming that everything still keeps running as it has for the last week. Um, and we will be able to uh, snark a little bit about things. So until then, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for my great co-host, Mr. Max Moriaro, uh, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, we wish you and yours to have a super sparkly day and enjoy your week. Goodbye. Okay,